In case you haven't noticed, the world is a very troubled place. And it has always been a troubled place. And there's nothing new in the troubles that we are facing today, even if maybe in our own sense of things, they seem to be rising. The troubles seem to be growing. But the world is a troubled place and has ever been a troubled place. There's a time when, when this struck me very keenly one time, when I was riding in my car. And I was hearing the reports about the earthquake that had struck the Indian Ocean. This was back in 2004. I know some of you were just little at the time. <laughs> some of you may have lived in the region, though, of the earthquake. It, it devastated Indonesia. It killed a quarter of a million people across 14 different countries. And I was listening to All Things Considered on national public radio. Don't judge me for that. I do this frequently. <laughs> and they were reporting quite powerfully on the scope and the depth of the tragedy. Many, many people were crushed by collapsing buildings. Survivors were swept out to sea as the waves came storming in. Parents had children ripped from their arms. Spouses had their loved ones taken from their side and lost to them forever. Homes and schools and businesses and churches and other places of worship were, were literally wiped away by this kind of echo of the flood and kind of foretaste of the day of the Lord. And at the end of their report, they gave it over to Daniel Shore. Daniel Shore was their semi-retired, he was in his late 80s at the time, senior news analyst. And he used the moment, that occasion, to present an essay of sorts. And that essay was focused on just one point. It was a challenge to the existence of a just God. Where is justice in all of this, he demanded. How can anyone believe there is a good and a sovereign and a just God in the face of such indiscriminate suffering and ruin. The problem of evil is a perennial apologetic issue. You know that. It's a relentless protest against Christian faith. And it's raised again and again anew in every generation. And it's a curious kind of protest too. If you really pay attention, unbelievers tend to pose this challenge as if, as if it is news, as if evil is a, as a new thing in the world, as if suffering is something unthought of and unheard of before, as if believers have never thought through these things, as if we have no personal experience of suffering in our own lives in this world, as if our faith has never been tested by the reality of evil. Indeed, they raise the challenge, the, the question, the problem of evil, as if God himself has no answer to this question. No explanation for his existence or his reign over creation, as if somehow he is exposed and embarrassed by all of this. And of course, it's not true. It's far, far, far from true. Indeed, God himself sets the problem of evil before us in his word, and he calls our attention to it throughout the scriptures, and not just once or twice, but repeatedly and constantly. 
And yet it is true. God never bows to our demand for an answer. He never yields to our insistence that he owes us an explanation for how he is reigning and what he is doing in his world. Not even to his faithful servant Job in all of his struggles and wrestlings with his own personal suffering in his faith. On the contrary, God puts the question to Job and he puts the question to us. Who are you? Where were you when I created the heavens and earth? Did I ask for your advice? Did I seek your opinion? Are you the one to question me? Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Will you condemn me that you might be right? I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Our God is in the heavens, as the psalmist declares. He does all that he pleases. Shall the pot protest the potter? Shall the creature question the creator? This is tough love, as we say. It's the kind of answer that parents rightly offer their children when their children begin to say, why, before they start moving to obey. You know that if you're a parent, you've been there. You know that if you're a child, you've done that somewhere along the way, at least in your heart. You demand an answer. You demand an explanation before you obey. And the answer that a parent ought to give in that moment is quite simple, because I am your father or your mother, and I said so. End of discussion. That's it. That is reason enough. And it is the necessary starting point. After your child obeys, then maybe you'll be pleased to explain it out. Not because you owe your child an explanation, but because you want your child to know the love that this is for his or her good, and that this is for the good of others, that this is the right kind of thing for the child to be doing. That you do have reasons, that you do have a purpose in all of this, and it is a good purpose. But honoring authority is the first lesson. Getting the parent-child order right is the cornerstone. And without that cornerstone being laid in our lives, nothing useful can be constructed. And so it is for us whenever we demand an answer from God. What we need most in that moment is to be put in our place, to be reminded of who God is and who we are in relation to him. This is the, the lesson that Mr. Shore needed to learn, still needed to learn at the end of his life. And that is the lesson that our children need to learn at the very beginning of their life. And of course, it is the lesson that we must remind ourselves of every day of our life. This is the first and the most basic lesson of Scripture. It's not only Theology 101, it's Genesis 1-1. God is the creator and we are his creatures. We are divinely blessed and favored creatures, to be sure. We are gloriously dignified and privileged creatures Creatures created in God's image and called to know and to enjoy him. But we are creatures just the same and creatures all the way down. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases.
Bear with me. I told you there's a long run up to Romans 3. But we are not just creatures. Picking up the strand with Romans 1 here a little. We are like obstinate children. Demanding the answers as a condition of our trust and obedience. Seeking satisfaction from God before bowing before him. We are proud, defiant, rebellious creatures. Abusing his patience and his long-suffering in order to challenge his goodness and his authority. Show us a sign, then we might believe. Prove yourself, then maybe we'll think about trusting you. Explain yourself to me, then maybe, maybe I'll consider your claims. This is a perversion of all that is good and true and right. That's a point Paul's making in Romans 1 and going forward up to this passage. This is the defiance of unbelief. And however natural it may seem to us, it is contrary to nature, contrary to all that is good and to the glory of our God. Where is the fear of God in our demands? Is there any respect for his authority, any trust in his goodness, any honor of his majesty, any fear and trembling, any awe before his glory? There is no distinction, Paul concludes. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. You know these lines. You know the argument. We are the unjust, and we are utterly without excuse, without any justification for our sin. We know better than to do the things that we do. Our conscience convicts us even as we indulge temptation. Yet we dare to excuse and justify ourselves before God and before others acting as if we are completely within our rights, as if God owes something to us and we owe him nothing. As if all this suffering and evil in the world, in our own lives, is ultimately his fault, somehow down to his failure, a failure of some sort in him or with him. In this way, we're so much like Adam, still standing and eating, insinuating that God is at fault for giving him this woman. Or Eve blaming the serpent as though she had no agency at all in the matter. We are willing to condemn the whole world and God himself to justify our sin. No wonder he never gives us an answer to our demand. He never yields to our demand, never gives us the explanation we insist he owes us. The real question, coming now to our text, the real question regarding God's justice is not how can God be just in the face of so much pain and suffering in the world, or how can a just God permit his creatures to rebel against him? There are good questions there, theological questions there, but the real question is how can God receive and accept and bless sinners like us? 
How can he be just and the justifier of the unjust? The question of the problem of evil belongs to unbelief and thus to apologetics, but the question of the problem of grace, if we can call it that, belongs to faith and to the gospel itself. This is a question worthy of our just and good and gracious God. When this becomes the frame of our mind and the meditation of our heart, then we're beginning to think rightly. We're beginning to think biblically. We are beginning to see ourselves and the world around us as God does. We're becoming reformed, whether we realize it or not. Nowhere in scripture does God offer us a justification of his decree to permit our rebellion or explain how he is just in the face of so much misery. But the demonstration of his justice in graciously saving sinners, of justifying those who are unjustifiably unjust, of not treating us according to the wrath we deserve, but forgiving us all our sins, blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and lavishing on us immeasurable kindness now and forever on us who were dead in our trespasses and sins, rebellious at the very core of our being, pursuing the passions and desires of our body and our mind, who are by nature children of wrath. By grace, we have been saved through faith. By grace alone, through faith alone. This is not our doing, but the gift of God, Paul insists. And it is precisely this, God's gracious way with his people, that raises the question of God's justice most directly and acutely. How could God promise deliverance to Adam and Eve? How could he accept Abel and his worship? How could he commune with Enoch and receive him into his glory and bring Noah and his household safely through the flood and embrace and bless Abraham and Jacob and David? How could he forbear and pass over their sins and their sinfulness? How could he embrace them with his steadfast love and faithfulness? How can God justify his gracious ways with his people? How can he be just and the justifier of the unjust? This is a question, the question that God has been pleased to answer. Please to give a public account of how it can be so. And the answer is Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory crucified for his people. Jesus Christ is what God has to say to us and to the whole world. The demonstration of his justice in justifying believing sinners. The fount of saving grace, the fulfillment of every promise that God makes to us in the covenant of grace. How can a just God justify the unjust? The answer is right here in our text. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How can God justify the unjust? I think the key word here is propitiation. 
And as you know, there's much to say on this term, and there's much debate over this term, more than I'm going to get into here to be sure. I take the word as a clear reference to the Day of Atonement and to the blood of the goat offered as a, as a sin offering that day. The goat that was slaughtered for all the sins and sinfulness of the people whose blood was sprinkled over and before the mercy seat, covering the ark in the Holy of Holies. That goat was put forward to represent the satisfaction of God's just wrath by the blood of the Redeemer who was at that time yet to come. And another goat was brought forward immediately after. And on this goat, all the sins of the people were placed. And it was carried out into the remotest place and driven yet further away, never to return or be seen or heard from ever again representing the effect of the propitiation rendered by the blood of the first goat. The Day of Atonement was to be repeated every year because it was merely a ceremony, and it only pointed to what has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who was put forward as a propitiation, the propitiation, the provision of saving grace for us a sufficient and effective satisfaction of God's justice made for all the sins and sinfulness of his people once and for all, without any need of repetition or supplement of any sort. This was to show God's righteousness, Paul continues, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus Christ was crucified in our place and for our sins. You know this. You study this. You believe this at some level at least. He died our death under our condemnation and satisfied the wrath of God against us by his own blood. He was able to do so because he himself was sinless. He did not die for his own sins. He was without sin. Death had nothing on him, no claim to him. According to the law, he deserved to live and to live on forever. The death he died, he died freely and voluntarily for others, for his people, the sinless for sinners, the one perfect in love, full of grace and truth, who was obedient to the point of death, who came into the world to be put forward as a propitiation for sin, to have our guilt imputed to him, that his righteousness might be imputed to all who believe. Here is God's answer to the question of his justice. His demonstration to us and to the whole world that he is just and the justifier of everyone who believes in Jesus. The demonstration that, the justi that justification by grace alone through faith alone is not contrary to the divine justice, but according to it precisely because our redemption is in Christ alone. Not to us, O Lord, not to us but to your name give glory. 
for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And he has been pleased to redeem his people in Jesus Christ, whom he put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So what does this, any of this have to do with servant leadership? Well, I have just one question for you as aspiring servant leaders. It's just a simple question of application. Do you believe this? That's it. Are you resting in Christ alone for your righteousness before God? Have you received by faith the one and only one God has put forward as his gracious provision for your salvation? Do you? Have you? Are you? That's the first and most fundamental question of anyone who aspires to be a minister in Christ's church and to serve his people. To God alone be the glory, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, I do pray that you would grant us this faith and that you would deepen this faith, that we might rest ourselves wholly and completely and ever more so in the sufficiency of Christ as our Savior, as the propitiation who has made a perfect satisfaction, who has drained the cup of wrath to the dregs on behalf of all those that you have given to him from before the foundation of the world. There is no fault to be found in you. The fault is entirely with us. May we see in Christ the one who is willing and able to save. And may we throw ourselves into your arms, into his arms, fully and completely, with nothing held back, nothing in reserve. And may you teach us to rest ourselves wholly right there knowing that our sufficiency is not from within, but comes from you and from you alone. For you are good, you are gracious, you are sovereign, you do all that you please. To you alone be the glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.